Hey everybody, welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of January 7th, 2020, our first podcast of the new year. Uh, I'm Charles Hayne, writer at No Film School. I'm here with George Edelman, editor-in-chief of No Film School. Hello. And filmmaker Kath Tolentino. Hi. And we're going to be talking about uh, Wonder Woman 84 and the origins of Patty Jenkins working on the entire Wonder Woman franchise. We're going to be talking about a totally bullshit rule in the Golden Globes that is preventing Minari from getting the press it deserves. And uh, we have a little bit of tech news. We're going to wrap it up with a conversation about starting your own festival to promote the work you want to see promoted. That is this week on the No Film School podcast. So... Our first story this week relates sort of to a new movie, which is Wonder Woman 84, which launched on Christmas on HBO Max. But actually, it's more about the press tour surrounding it. Patty Jenkins, now that she's finished number two and already signed for number three, has gotten really honest talking about the creative process of making Wonder Woman number one. And uh, it has been a really... You know, everyone understands the filmmaking process is complicated, but it is very rare you get people who are willing to be very honest about the process when it is full of controversy and uh, (laughs) is very upfront about the fact that, you know, she was offered and, you know, I think one time quit and the other time, you know, left uh, Wonder Woman three times over 10 years. They went through 30 scripts um, and she felt, very much like they didn't actually want her to direct the movie. They wanted a woman to be the director of the movie. And then they wanted to make the movie they wanted to make regardless of the director having their own vision. And that's something that like we all suspect, but it is incredibly rare to hear more than the political creative differences. And it's sort of bracingly honest to hear someone talk about that process. Can I read one of the quotes from the WTF podcast with Mark Marin? This is, the, this is the quote that stands out to me. And if you want to read more about it, uh, check out our story on it on No Film School. But she said, they, meaning Warner Brothers, wanted to hire me like a beard. They wanted me to walk around on set as a woman, but it was their story and their vision. And my ideas, they didn't even want to read my script. There was such mistrust of a different way of doing things and a different point of view. I think it's refreshing, like you said, to hear this from somebody because we read between the lines and assume these kinds of things. And what ends up happening that's unfair is we often also have to assume or deduce that the directors, writers, the filmmakers behind these tent poles have their hands tied or are handcuffed to things that a company like Warner Media and the conglomerate that owns it are insisting upon that aren't good creatively to us. So we end up saying things like, what the hell was so-and-so thinking? Like, why did they think that was good? You know, things like that. But what's nice about this is that it's separating in an honest way. It's saying like, look, I don't get to make all these decisions. I'm told if you want to do it, this is what you have to do. And they don't even want to know what I think. So I'm glad that there is hopefully some breaking of ground here of saying like, what is coming from the company that makes the decision and what is coming from the director they hire? Yeah, I feel like I still have questions about that. Like <clears throat> Patty Jenkins ended up uh, saying that she was able to make the movie that she wanted to make, but I still watch, you know, I watched 
Wonder Woman 84. I watched the first Wonder Woman. And I feel like there are moments in both of these films that are like a studio trying to hit their diversity and inclusion markers, but just not very mindfully. And uh, I, I can't imagine that Patty Jenkins is, you know, the person making those decisions. Like her first film monster was so stellar and just had no insincerity about it whatsoever. But Wonder Woman 84, there's just so many, I don't know, so many moments where I watch it and I'm like, why is this happening? It feels like they're trying to, you know, tick off boxes. And I want to talk to other people too and see if they feel the same way. Like when they see Pedro Pascal as a child holding a tamale and getting made fun of in school, do they think, oh, he's me? Or do they think like that is so clearly a moment that this studio is trying to like win over certain audiences, you know? I mean, you always have to wonder to a certain extent, like if the studio, like first off, even if they're doing it poorly, it is better that a studio is trying to be inclusive than the before world where they didn't care about that at all. Like it's a step in the right direction. Like I feel like, you know, we have a tendency to want like, uh, there's always the battle between the perfect and the good. And like, Mm -hmm. yes, I think that, that, uh, studio attempts at diversity and inclusion often feel like cheesy after school specials from the 1980s, but like, at least they feel like they should be moving in that direction and maybe eventually they will start to do it better. I also want like, you know, the bigger the budget, the more it is always a negotiation between multiple factors, how you are able to create the movie you want to create. There's a whole tapestry of elements that go into making what a movie is. And a lot of those are sort of pre like are not up to the director, right? Like on a big studio movie, your casting is largely done you know, on the second movie, she probably had a lot more say, but in the first movie, like, you know, the, the your Wonder Woman is going to be the Wonder Woman who is in four other movies already. You, and that's a huge impact. So it's like the concept of director's vision on movies that big is always a complicated one. Yeah, I think you're bringing up a great point, which also speak both of you are, which speaks to something I was I was hinting at, which is we continue to have, there's a culture around filmmaking that is a filmmaker is an artist in the same way that a novelist or maybe a painter once was or any number of fine arts where somebody is truly like an author of a piece and they control mostly every aspect of it. And that's a hundred percent not true in filmmaking. Like we have auteur theory and things like that to blame for this idea that a director or even a writer director has all this influence when they have like a lot but not all like there's so many forces, so many people, so many cooks in the kitchen. And I always point to the fact that Casablanca is considered like one of the great movies of all time. And it's like in every way made by committee, like <laughs> like there's really no one person that anyone could point to. It's like one of those perfect, happy accidents, like tapestry, like you said. And I think that's why that's another reason why you can say like, what about this Wonder Woman 1984? So many people, so much of the commentary around it is like, this doesn't even make sense. You know, like what is going on in this movie? I can't even track it. And I think it's like, that's not Patty Jenkins necessarily, which is sort of like, that's so many people and so many pressures and so many needs. But real quick, just to throw in there, like I, you say, Charles, like it's a process and uh, perfect is the enemy of the good. Also 100% true. To which I would add, you know, go back to the era of Casablanca, like I mentioned, and find a female voice. 
that is acknowledged that is like prominent in filmmaking. There isn't one. Like, like literally, like none of those classic, no movies of that era had like of, of any perspective, like they were hidden. The ones who did have impact, they were not in the forefront. They were not acknowledged. And so we have come a long way in that sense, even if we're stumbling around with it. So I, I don't want it to be like, you know, we don't want to condemn the correct course of action because it's not the ideal version of it i think we'll get there hopefully well also for me it's like i mean you know there were female filmmakers in the teens and the 20s that then the pendulum swung and and the 30s and 40s were like a particularly bad time for female creators in a in a way that's like you know we forget that it started more egalitarian and then became less as it went along the same way the computer industry was like predominantly female in the 50s 60s and 70s and then by the 80s became sort of a dude fest once there was power (laughs) <laughs> to be taken yeah. from it. Yeah, that's exactly. kind of what happens. Well, sure. And we see it in the female characters of that era as well. Um, I mean, I think about this a lot. Like, you know, I watch a lot of these classic movies on TCM and stuff. And it's like, yes, uh, you know, they have their own personalities. But so often it's like they're idealized versions of women or what the male character wants to see in uh, in the leading lady or whatever, you know. That has definitely changed. George, I think you're right that things are, you know, progressing. For me, it's also one of those things of like, it, it's that great Ho Chi Minh quote of you turn adversity into advantage. Like, you know, what she's talking about is she's like, I was hired to be a beard. And I was like, fuck that. Being a beard is my way in the door. And then I'm going to put my personal stamp on it. I haven't seen Wonder Woman 84, but I actually quite enjoyed the first Wonder Woman movie. It was on the short list of sort of action films that I feel like action when done well is magnificent. And when done poorly is embarrassing. And, you know, there's not a lot of comic book movies I love, but I really enjoyed the first Wonder Woman. I felt like it was sort of a legitimate, fresh, enjoyable uh, take on it. And I feel like it's like, well, who cares how you get in the door? she got in the door to be a beard and she was like, okay, but I'm still going to continue to fight as hard as I can to make it interesting uh, for as long as I can. And, you know, also we talk about long development times. It was a 10 year development and 30 drafts of the script on the first wonder woman. I haven't seen the new wonder woman, but I, Yikes. everyone I know who's watched it, has been very disappointed. And you know, that it was shooting two years. It, it shot in the summer of 19. So it started shooting, uh, like less than two years after she agreed to make the film. So you go from a 10 year development process to actually make something interesting, which I, I still think the first wonder woman was to a two year process to make something that many find disappointing. It is a reminder that good things take time. And it is always a reminder that your job as a director is to never stop fighting for it to be better. Like your whole time, constantly, you're always just pushing to make it better. No matter what, that is your job. And you know what's kind of cool? Um, her, She's got an upcoming project with Disney, which I'm not trying to put Disney on a pedestal compared to media, Warner Media, certainly, or make a distinction there, but another major studio, major conglomerate. And she's doing, a, she's slated to do one of these Star Wars things, and people are very excited about it. And she'll probably, she seems very excited about it. And Kathleen Kennedy is still running Lucasfilm there. So, I mean, we've seen a major shift in terms of, like she did get her foot in the door as a beard, so to speak, but now it's expanding to other things. Maybe there's more room to push. Maybe there's going to be things like Wonder Woman 1984 that people don't love, but maybe there's going to be another one that's great. And I, I think we want to just generally say, hey, it's a, 
like making movies like this around a female hero protagonists, you know, action film is a big step away from, you know, an era where every movie pretty much was defined from a male perspective and every female in it had to exist within that perspective. Like you said, uh, Kath, I, I'm always struck by that because I'm pretty much always been blind to it as a male myself. Like every old movie I watch is kind of like from my point of view, <laughs> you know, like it doesn't ever occur to me until honestly that too recently in my life that it's like, holy crap, all those movies, every single one of them is I'm, you know, from that perspective, there's so many people who don't have movies from those eras that address their perspective on the world. That's crazy. And actually, that is, I, I watched Wonder Woman last night, and that is um, one thing that I did really appreciate about this film is that in some ways, it kind of feels like it's geared towards teenage girls or like preteen girls. Like it feels like the kind of movie that I would have watched at a sleepover as a preteen. But I'm so glad that Patty Jenkins, you know, seems to have made this movie with that in mind because there's a lot of really great messaging for young girls in there about, you know, um, having the strength to be your own person and to live a true authentic life. Um, and it's like very anti-gun, which I really appreciate and just so different from like what I did watch as a teenager. <laughs> and I got to say like that is – Patty Jenkins, like having her at the helm, ensured that, you know, that messaging would be positive. Yeah, my um, my son, who's shout out to him, he's turning six today when we recorded this, but he has grown up in a world where female protagonists, heroes and characters are not different in his mind. He likes them if it's the toys of them, if it's their role in the adventure. He does not distinguish between them and the male heroes and protagonists in the same way that I did growing up, because what was fed to me was like He-Man or She-Ra, you know, like there, it wasn't like, like there was one for girls or like My Little Pony for girls, which of course is also crossed over now. But like, there was a really hard line of like, this is what's for boys. This is what's for girls. This is a girl thing with a girl character. And I think that the kids who are coming up now in what we see as like a stumbling around will not have these distinctions. And that that is going to be the progress we'll see in a generation or one after that. Awesome. So on to another facet of what is the ongoing reckoning of the entertainment industry with how undiverse it was until basically a week ago. Um <laughs> <laughs> or or five years from now. I don't know that we're, we're anywhere near where we are yet um, or where we're going yet. Um, <clears throat> it is it is award season yet again, which is always a ridiculous time of year. But one of the best- It's going to be so quality. long too, right? Because the Oscars aren't until April something. So it's going to be a long award season. <laughs> Isn't that when they they used to be before they got moved up to February? I feel I like they, they used to be like March or March. April. Yes. yes. Yeah. End of March, but now they're like end of April this year. So are they? Doing, are they going to do the Oscars on Zoom? Like, is that? <laughs> is everyone? Is it just going to be one time? Hope, my guess I mean, is they're hoping that it'll be more normal somewhat by then. But I don't know. What do you? What were you going to say, Charles? Well, I was going to say I think whatever plans they ha were making in November went out the window when LA. I mean, LA is really, really bad right now. LA has zero ICU beds. There are ambulances, circulating hospitals. Like, 
there yes. like messages it's- have gone out to ambulances to stop taking people that you don't think will survive. LA is LA is insane at the moment. So I think we don't know what the Oscars will be like in April. Like I, I think if, if, if LA doesn't calm, there's no way it will be in person, but I'm sure they are desperately hoping the vaccine will roll out wildly and that they'll get everyone to quarantine together and, and they'll be able to do something in person because everyone is relentlessly optimistic in the face of reality, it seems. But I don't know that official plans are out. Yeah, and productions have been shut down, which you know we may also want to talk about. Did they officially that. get shut down or did Garcetti just say, please stop? Yeah, Garcetti said, please stop. And a lot of them were kind of, I think the phrase I heard through sources was, it's a game of chicken because they were all looking at each other and like, are you going to stop? Am I going to stop? Like, who's going to stop first? But many of them have stopped. And I mean, the things I've heard about how it's going on the inside is is troubling. Like, you know, the, the number of people who are getting sick are not like talent, the concern about people in crews getting it is not high. It's troubling, just like everything living in Los Angeles right now. Los Angeles, really, it is like insane right now. The numbers are really bad. Like, I think it's like one in 10 people or something. It's nuts. I think that Gar- there is no official thing, but almost every studio has stopped production here. Uh, yeah. So we don't, we, we don't know what the Oscars will be, but... What we're talking about now is actually some really out-of-date rules that continue to plague both the Oscars and the Golden Globes. Um, So the Oscars has always had a little bit of controversy. If you guys all remember last year, the wonderful film Parasite won both the Best Foreign Language Oscar and – or the Best Foreign Film Oscar and the Best Picture because um, you can be nominated in both. And – it was, and it was a great movie, and it won them both, and good for Parasite, Parasite rules. If you haven't seen Parasite, go watch Parasite. It rocks. Um, but it's a little more complicated in the Golden Globes. You can only be nominated in one or the other. And a U.S.-made film, shot in America, produced by Americans with U.S. money and U.S. distribution that was a huge hit at Sundance this year, called Minari, which happens to be primarily in Korean as a language, is only allowed to be listed as a foreign film, which admittedly gets less press. And the point of awards is press. The goal of awards is to get people, the good part of awards is not about getting dressed up and congratulating each other. It's about bringing attention to movies that people might not be aware of otherwise, right? There are millions of people who watched Parasite last year because it won that might not have watched it otherwise, I think. Or hundreds of thousands, actually, because the pandemic came soon after that. But regardless, it's about drawing attention to things. And Minari, a film many, many people love, um, is pushing to be considered in the main categories because they're a film made by an American crew with an American cast about America with U.S. money that just happens to be in Korean. And that should be allowed to be in it the main competition and it's crazy that it's not. Yeah. And sort of tying back to our conversation about how like we're moving in the right direction, but things still need to be adjusted. I kind of wanted to research this a little bit more, but the golden globe category sort of changed from foreign film to foreign language film, which in some ways feels like a step forward because the idea that like there's American films and then all other foreign films feels a little bit, I don't know, like selfish, I guess. 
It's like saying normal and other. R- right. <laughs> Which is problematic. And it is already so frustrating because there's just so many great films that are not made in America and to lump them all into one category. Uh, but anyway, that's a different problem. But yes, I think I haven't had a chance to see Minari yet. I am super excited about watching it. The only reason why I haven't had a chance to see it is because it's been sold out at all these different festivals that it was playing at, and I just like couldn't find a ticket. And it's not out yet, I think, until February. Well, but, it was in limited release, so it could qualify. Right. Um, but that you know that only matters if you live in LA and New York and could go to theaters. The bigger question for me is that like this is a different thing for other countries, right? If you're the German National Awards, what are those? The Lolas. I think they're the Lola's. It's a much easier thing to be like movies in German versus movies not. In, it's a much like, although there are some German speaking areas in Texas, it's a simpler issue. America, it's a more complicated issue because we have an international film business where we're constantly like co-producing with German money or Chinese money. And we are also a polyglot culture of a variety of cultures mixed together with a variety of languages that is built that as part of our identity. I mean, anybody who grows up going to U.S. schools, here's the melting pot, the melting pot, the melting pot so often. But yet, like, in order to establish white supremacy, in order to establish, like, like dominance as a culture, there, there are all these artificial ideas of what makes an American created, which includes the English language, which is a language imported from another country, but, like, became the dominant language and is called the dominant languages and is treated as such. So there are all these rules that are part of it that are about like replicating a very specific narrow idea of what makes an American and thus what makes an American movie. And I think this is a real opportunity to be like, you know, America is whatever happens in America. And so like a movie about an immigrant family coming to America and pursuing the American dream is an American story, whether or not a word of English is ever spoken. And like, that's the exciting opportunity we have now is we're in a period where we're like, wait a minute, this rule is dumb. Let's just get rid of this rule. And like, I'm really hoping in the next couple of weeks, the Golden Globes are like, oh, hey, this rule is dumb. Um, Cause it's a dumb rule. Yeah. It's, there's some, there's, you, you touched on something like top, the new Top Gun sequel, whenever that comes out is like one of these major blockbusters that's funded largely with, you know, Tencent, which is a Chinese conglomerate. And it's like, is that an American movie? You know, like, like, what is the line? Like, yeah, obviously it is. But on the other hand, like the idea of a global village, globalization, just a culture that is like every, the internet has changed the way transactions are handled, has changed the way everybody interacts and what's available where and movies open everywhere at once. It's not like, you know, a movie that, we make here doesn't open in another country until we get the reels over to them, like in however many months it's just a, so much of this is outmoded and it's based on an old way of doing things that doesn't make sense anymore. I've always said, you know, when we talk about great, great movies and great eras in film, you know, people will do that. We'll play that game of like, what was the best year in movies or what was the best decade? 1997. (laughs) <laughs> right. There's a bunch of really solid ones, but I'll always kind of come to this point of like, well, the 50s, the 1950s is like an amazing decade in world cinema. 
Like it's unbelievable. Like how many countries were producing like incredible groundbreaking movies. It's not really the best decade for American cinema, but like there's so much great stuff that was happening around the world from like these incredible filmmakers. So I, I, everything like that, you have to kind of come back to, um, can we just say like best movies? Can we say best picture includes everything? Can we, could we we start an international world series of movies? Could there just be instead of an Academy Awards that's centered in LA, like one that like an Olympics of movies that's in a different city every year and is all of the best movies from the year? Like how hard would it be to start that? Could I do that on my weekends? <laughs> yeah, you could. No, I mean the thing that's like the other thing that's important is how the cultures feed into one another's quality of work. I've talked about this a lot before, but like if you didn't have like a Kurosawa seeing a John Ford and then you didn't have a Leone seeing a Kurosawa and then you didn't have a Tarantino seeing a Leone, like everything, like the, the ability to, to build upon another, uh, the version from someone else's culture or country is important. Like, and I, I think that if we look at it that way, we'll understand that you've said before this, like the baseball championship in america is called the world series isn't that a silly idea <laughs> like we're like no 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 it's the world series like but it's only yeah. one country competing. no can they, no world. canada has a couple baseball teams they do now yeah but they called it the world series before they did but yes canada is represented now <laughs> but at the time they coined the term they were like it's the world series i don't care if it's one country that's the way we see things you know yeah i i also um, you know, going back to this Golden Globe question, this happened last year with The Farewell, which to me is such an American movie and one of my favorite films of that year. I feel like maybe I'm going to get off topic here a little bit, but like when I watch a movie like The Farewell and I'm anticipating a movie like Minari, it, it speaks to me on such a deep level having had my Chinese side of my family has been here for three generations. And so we talk about Asian American cinema, literature, just like everything that's out there that represents Asian Americans, we like seen or read. So to see movies like this get that kind of, you know, widespread release and that kind of um, inclusion in the canon in a way is really exciting. And so it feels like now is a good time to adjust when it comes to actually recognizing these films formally, you know. Your point about the experience you've had and it not being like that experience is an American experience. And to say like, well, but it doesn't count because of the language, like that, that's not, it's just, it's missing the point. It's a rule that prevents us from doing what we're supposed to be doing, basically. Yeah. And that doesn't drive attention to the films that deserve attention. Um, it doesn't acknowledge the broadness of what an American experience and a, an American movie can actually be. I really love that point you made, which is that the best outcome, the best uh, byproduct of awards and awards season is that it creates these lists for people to watch. What did you miss this year, basically, that you might not have heard of, that might not have been available everywhere, that didn't hit every multiplex or wasn't like at the top of the streaming channel that you should definitely see and it it blows up for these movies that that and and it opens up people's eyes to these movies and that's 
a win-win because everybody's looking for good stuff to watch, especially now. So like, why would we eliminate from that list of that's kind of why like having 10 best picture nominees is, is fine with me. Cause it just means more stuff that people will look at and say like, Oh, I should probably check that out. Mm. All right. Up next, this will be a quickie. There's no tech news this week because I mean, let's be real. There's like, nobody makes tech announcements between Christmas and new years. That's just not the time where anybody is really wanting to pay attention to new camera specifics or anything. So, you know, I got like three interesting press releases in the last two weeks and I haven't written any of them up yet. However, I did do a post about the tech I most want to see in 2021. And since we always do a quick tech news segment, I just wanted to point out that post and I wanted to to drop the gauntlet on two pieces of tech that I hope we see this year before we wrap up with our final segment. One is I think every computer that comes with an Ethernet port in any way should just be 10 gigabyte Ethernet this year. I am um, flabbergasted that we are still seeing one gig Ethernet show up in computers. And why does this matter to filmmakers? So. When your company grows, when you start working on bigger projects, you're eventually going to have moments where you're like, you know, it would be great if is if two of us could work on this at the same time. And on a bigger show, you'll invest in like a SAN with fiber and it'll be like $40,000 and you'll have to hire a full-time engineer to maintain it. But on little shows, we use good old copper ethernet because every computer comes with an ethernet port and you can get decent speeds for one gigabit ether and that is how all the little indie shops run. 10 years ago, my little indie shop was running on one gig. Five years ago, Apple started rolling out the option of 10 gig on its machines. But seriously, everything should just come with 10 gig this year. And Apple's new Mac mini, I really like it. I might buy one, but it doesn't even allow for 10 gig. And that is infuriating to me. So that's my one big tech gate thing. And then there were a couple things on my best of this this year that still had the original old USB port. And I feel like everybody should just be USB-C to USB-C this year. So tech companies, if you if you listen to the podcast just for my tech news segment, just know that I, my Andy Rooney thing this year is, come on, guys, 10 gig Ethernet and USB-C. All right. Last up this week, Kath, we wanted to talk to you because you did something very cool with Baymade, which is not made by your significant other, although Baymade <laughs> really sounds like it. But what is it? Baymade. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, so Baymade, the name comes from uh, Made in the Bay Area, which is where I live, uh, the San Francisco Bay Area, post-COVID starting, so like March, April last year. A good friend of mine and I sort of put our heads together and said, you know, we're tired of um, film festivals that we revere not taking our movies. <laughs> and we also recognize that during this time of COVID, a lot of us are kind of, you know, we're not able to work on set and we're not able to be with our film community. Let's find a way to showcase our work and, you know, bring people together in the process. And so it started out as this small live stream that we did uh, to YouTube where we screened six films, our films and the films of some of our friends. And we publicized to our local filmmaking community and just invited, you know, everyone we could think of who might be interested, and also raised a little bit of money from local film vendors to provide stipends for the filmmakers whose film was we screened. You know, it started off as just this sort of like community engagement idea. And our first live stream, we ended up having about 250 people show up, and we raised something like $500 in donations. And afterwards, Everyone was like, wow, this is really 
great and we're so excited that you're doing this. And so we decided to make it a regular quarterly sort of festival, I guess. I am really just sort of impressed by how easier it is than I thought it would be to create an opportunity, um, to create an opportunity for ourselves and for the people we know, and also to expand it to the wider Bay Area. We made a film freeway page. And so we started accepting submissions from anyone who's Bay Area based, who's telling Bay Area stories. By coming up with this venue, we're now able to go to people outside of the Bay Area and say, look, here, there's a lot of great emerging talent um, in our local community. Here's an opportunity for you to see our works and, you know, bookmark us, keep us in mind. And so all that to say, like, you know, I just got a rejection email this morning from Berlinale Talents, which I'm bummed by, but rejection (laughs) happens all the time and there's ways around it. And it's been a really amazing opportunity that we've just sort of like built out of thin air. uh, And with the help of the people that we know have, have kind of turned it into um, hopefully something that can last. So yeah, I, I wanted to bring that up because I think, you know, a lot of us are moved out of New York or moved out of LA back in our hometowns or trying to figure out what to do next since it feels like there's no work opportunity or, you know, we can't be out on set. Um, and with a little bit of creative thinking, you can make a lot of progress and, and build opportunities for yourself. You know, I think it's really cool. I wanted, I'm glad you talked about it. I'm glad we, Charles, uh, brought it up too. I think that creating your own way to exhibit share and see other people's work is cool, but it's also a way to create a community and collaborate. And it there's no, I mean, slam dance is just people. That's all it was, was people who didn't, who were frustrated by not getting into Sundance and other places. And were like, we can do our own and we can create our own credo and celebrate our own kind of films. And it's been this wild crazy success that's launched tons of careers and just created its own community based around its own stuff. And I think that if you even asked someone like Robert Redford or the people who started Sundance, they would say like, yeah, the festival's kind of blown up beyond control and it's a kind of industry and, and that. But we are fine. We are constantly looking for new ways to be closer to creating filmmaker communities for people who don't get in like the labs or, you know, so there's there's a quest there that you that is important to especially when we can't attend, you know, in person to try and create festivals. I've had so many thoughts myself about like I want to create a festival about blank 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 where we only show like these kinds of things or uh and I think that that is a noble cause and a great way to stay connected. Yeah, I think the other thing is that, you know, we we found there are some films that we haven't accepted and, you know, some filmmakers that aren't maybe aren't quite ready for for what we're doing. But at the same time, um, I really have been trying to sort of do personal outreach and and ask folks, you know, like, what do you feel like you need next in your career in terms of like training or lessons or what can we provide beyond just this? you know, this showcase that could help you take that next step. Um, and I found that in, in creating an opportunity for others, I feel like I, I've found um, more energy to keep 
giving and providing and that it feeds on itself in some ways like it is it, it does mean like less focus on quote unquote my own creative work like my writing um but it also is such a, a life-giving and, com- and community building activity that I don't care. <laughs> like that everything that we've been doing has been um, a positive contribution and like I'm all about creating good karma, you know. I mean, it's also one of those things to remember that like modern society has a community problem where we, we're not naturally built for community and big cities have a community problem. And, and so most successful communities are deliberate and structured, right? You think about like, Oh, I want to build a community. I actually, you know, I need a few things. I need regular contact with people. I need like some sort of activity that we are built towards. Like active conscious community is a really important thing when the civilization we live in doesn't, you know, 200 years ago, we all went to the same church on Sunday and that fostered a community, whether we wanted it or not. Um, and so like, I love that you have like a regular quarterly, which feels very sustainable way to bring people together, keep reconnecting them with each other and keep growing. And like, that is a beautiful, sustainable, wonderful thing. And it's a real act of rebellion against like this industry, there's like two ways of thinking about this industry. And like, there's a very cutthroat way where people are like, eh, there's this limited number of opportunities and I need to get ahead of everybody else because I'm going to get them and you're not. And then there's another way of like, well, what if there's enough opportunities for all of us? And what if we just help each other out? Because our goal is to make the coolest stuff we possibly can. And if we help each other, we're all going to, it's all going to be better. And like, that seems to play out more over time. Like the super cutthroat people I've worked with tend to burn out faster, but the people who support each other tend to last longer. And so I, I, I don't know. I, when I saw this, I was, I didn't know you were doing it until just now, but uh, I mean, until a couple of days ago, but I was like, this is just awesome. Like it is just exactly the kind of thing that should be happening. It is really awesome. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Like, you know, a few of the films that we screened so far have gone on to do really well on the festival circuit. And so we're able to then kind of act as a megaphone to keep promoting those alums. And um, by staying in touch with the people, we've already, we've had two events. So we've screened 12 films. We're doing another one in two weeks um, where we'll screen six more. So already that's a community of 18 filmmakers and everyone who worked on those movies who can continue to support each other and support the future filmmakers whose work we showcase. So there's, you know, immediate support there. And then because of uh, my film Parachute that I made, I had a call with a production company in LA who was interested in, you know, finding out about what else I'm working on. And I mentioned to them that I do this Bay Area Film Showcase. And they said, oh my gosh, we hear that there's so much great work coming out of the Bay. We know that there's so much great work coming out of the Bay based on recent years. And so they already bought tickets to our next event because they want to, you know, meet some more filmmakers and, and make some more connections. And that feels really exciting to me that like, hey, I had this sort of personal opportunity in my own career, but I can extend that to everyone else that's a, a part of my family. Um, yeah. We real quick, I, it just reminds me again, I've talked about it so many times, but one of the things I did early on in working in the 
industry-ish was this thing, Channel 101, which still exists in Los Angeles now via remote, but it was an in-person monthly screening where creators just got together and made stuff and voted about it. And it was founded by Dan Harmon. And so many people who came out of it still collaborate to this day on big TV shows and stuff like that. But more importantly, there was a whole thing dedicated. We had a message board. It was like back in the early ish days of that sort of thing that was like about called rejectee therapy, where you could, what didn't make in, you could talk about why, and you could ask the judges who were on the panel, like each month, why they selected certain things and not others. And it was a very active communal, um, here's what works and what doesn't, here's how story works. So it just, there was an educational aspect to it that fostered growth and collaboration. And I think that's always like festivals make more losers than winners, but what do you do with that? Like, can you grow from it? Can you develop talent and ability? Or is it just like, you know, let's just watch the stuff we picked. I think that's such a great idea. This uh, chatting about why things get rejected. That is really helpful knowledge. All right, well, let's wrap it up. Uh, so you you can find me on Twitter and, and Instagram at Charles Hain. You cannot find me on Facebook because fuck Facebook. Um, I'm online at katherinetolentino.com and uh, my Bay Maid is on Instagram at Bay Maid Films. And we have an event coming up on January 14th um, at 7 p.m. It's going to be live streamed to YouTube and we have Q&As with all the filmmakers. So it's also a great learning opportunity. And I'm George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. You can find us on Twitter. Follow us, uh, No Film School. Go to our Facebook page. Yes, nobody loves Facebook anymore, but or I don't, certainly. But uh, we have a really active page. We post all, our, post all our stories there, so check them out. And go over to nofilmschool.com. Please like, subscribe, rate the podcast, leave a comment, let us know what you think. Send any questions for our ask section to editor at nofilmschool.com or ask at nofilmschool.com. Either one works. Head over to the site and see all the stuff we have to start the new year. We have some really exciting things coming about gear and tech, even though it's a down season. So keep an eye out for that. Thanks so much. 